Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim, coming to you from Farms Partner Station, KVCR in the Inland Empire. On today's show, if you've had to wait several weeks or even months for an appointment at your doctor's office or struggled to find a primary care doctor at all, you're likely feeling the effects of California's doctor shortage. Roughly a third of the state's population live in areas where there aren't enough primary care docs, according to the California Healthcare Foundation. And it's particularly bad in rural areas and in the rapidly growing Inland Empire. This hour, we look at what that short supply means for patients, our broader healthcare system, and the doctors themselves. What's been your experience trying to find a primary care doc? Tell us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. About a third of Californians live in places with a critical shortage of primary care providers. They're the family doctors you turn to for your annual physicals, the ones that help manage your chronic conditions and have gotten to know you, the pediatricians who treat your children when they need checkups. This hour, we're going to look at what's causing the shortage and how one hard-hit area of the state, the Inland Empire, is addressing it. And we want to hear from you. Have you or a loved one struggled to find or schedule an appointment with a primary care doctor recently? How do you cope? Where do you turn? And do you think it's affected your health? You can tell us by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Joining us now are two primary care doctors. Nate McLaughlin is a family medicine doctor and program director for the Family Medicine Program at Riverside University Health Services, UC Riverside. Dr. McLaughlin, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Sunita Muta, a general internist providing primary care, also professor of medicine and director of Health Force Center at UC San Francisco. Glad to have you on the program as well, Dr. Muta. My pleasure. Nice I to wanted, be here. Yeah, glad to have you. I wanted to start with you, actually, because you've looked at just how bad the primary care doctor shortage in California is. And I guess first, I'm wondering what's considered a good ratio or enough doctors for a population? That's such a good question. Um, this is an area that's been a, a longstanding focus for Health Force Center um, at UCSF. The ratio that we typically look at is really designated at the federal level. So the U.S. Health Resources and Service Administration has something that it designates a health professional shortage area. And to cut to the chase for primary care, what we really look at is a ratio where we have clinicians that are between 3,000 and 3,500 per population, um, per 100,000. So um, that that is not that much, depending on what the need is in their area. And that's what we look at as a threshold to say, is there a shortage? 
or is there not a shortage? And that's just for physicians in primary oh. care. Wow. And so what do most regions in California have? Quite a bit more than that. The three areas that are really an issue and that they have been a longstanding area of shortages are the Inland Empire, Northern and Sierra regions, and the San Joaquin Valley. And these have historically been, we are well under those ratios, those number of clinicians that we need for primary care. Yeah, we've seen stats of about 40 doctors per 100,000 people in the Inland Empire. Yes, and some of the earlier data says it's it's lower than that, 34 wow. maybe. Um, so, and what, what the data are, you know, of course the data are, are helpful, but what they don't get at is some of the things that have been happening more recently. Our clinicians are aging. Many of them are leaving because of burnout that has increased during the pandemic. And fewer are entering, and we'll talk about these things because of financial pressures. So mm -hmm. the numbers are... Um, they're not great, and they're uh, they're particularly severe, and we'll hear about what the impact is. Yeah, particularly severe here in the in Inland Empire, Dr. McLaughlin. And I'm so curious how that shortage has affected you and your clinic in Moreno Valley. I understand you work in a large clinic and have many patients, many more than appointments available. Can you talk about that imbalance? Um, yeah. So, you know, we're a training clinic. So most of our physicians are in their you know, postgraduate training from medical school. So there are three years for residency. Um, and then we have a group of faculty as well. And, and really being an FQHC in the safety net system, right? So we see the overflow, right? So we have the assigned patients, but anybody who needs to come in comes in. And that, as you mentioned, results in a kind of disparity between how many appointments we physically have and, and how many patients need those appointments. How long would you say on average patients are waiting to come in? It's it's interesting because no matter how far we seem to book our schedules out, there's always they always fill up. So if we publish our schedules and open them up for patients two months out, then they fill up within a few days. If we wow. extend it another month, then they fill up again within a few days. If we go out to six months, they still fill up. The only way we can kind of prevent or protect access for people who need more acute visits is to just block those appointments. So it's really kind of a a balancing act between does someone need an appointment this week or do they need it in three months? And so you're saying if it's 100% full, you're trying to fit patients in who really need to see you. Can you just give me a sense of how you do that? Yeah, no. So it's either we have one of two ways is just accept people as they walk in and, and fit them into the schedule because, of course, every clinic has a no-show rate or we protect slots and we say, all right, this is a same-day visit slot. But in protecting that slot, it means that for the people who call in for appointments in a week or two, like that's blocked for a same day. And so it's always a, you know, a, a com compromise between getting people who call in for an appointment in a month and serving people who need to come in today or tomorrow. Dr. McLaughlin, if the visits are rare, do the visits by patients tend to need to be longer? <laughs> like, is there more that you need to address? Yeah, that, that's that's exactly the case is um, if people can't get in, then, you know, there's a scarcity mindset of I don't know when I'm going to come in next or getting into the phone system can be hard. So they they're like, these, these are all the things I want to talk about today. And we still have the same kind of slot time of around 20 minutes, which is pretty standard. Um, but when you're trying to decide between six and 10 different problems, it's really hard to address all of those to the depth that they need to be addressed. So, Dr. McLaughlin, where do your patients go if they need to get in but they can't see you? Because I imagine that must happen a lot. Yeah, I think it does. And, you know, there's urgent cares in the area. The, the, you know, the Riverside University Health System is also trying to expand same-day access 
um, in different clinics. Um, so they're trying different models there to help prevent them from going either externally or to the ER, which is, you know, as I'm sure everyone's aware, like a very overburdened part of the health system and also a really poor substitute for primary care. Like people go to the ED for bed refills. Well, that's again, taking resources away from emergency medicine and people who need that um, and is also serving as like, again, a poor substitute for primary care. So we're talking with Dr. Nate McLaughlin, a family medicine doctor uh, at, and also a director of the family medicine program at Riverside University Health Services, UC Riverside. We also have Sunita Muta with us, a general internist providing primary care with Health Force Center at UCSF. And you, our listeners, We've asked you to join the conversation. We'd like to hear if any of these experiences that Dr. McLaughlin is describing are familiar to you and what it's like for you on that side of things. You can email forum at kqed.org, post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or you can call us at 866-733-6786. So Dr. McLaughlin, tell us what got you into primary care, why you chose that as the area that you wanted to focus in and be a doctor in? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, life experiences like anyone else. And, and I grew up in, you know, you mentioned the North States. I grew up in Siskiyou County um, and really the the doctor kind of mentors that I saw early in life were, were all family medicine. Um, and I just, you know, from a very base level was just, I was fascinated with medicine from an early age. I remember like hearing about surgery and, and people surviving it. And I, I, at a young age thought that you cut someone open, they would die, but medicine somehow prevented that. And so the early infatuation kind of progressed. And as I went through my training and education, I kind of never found anything that I was more fascinated with than medicine. And, and really like that vision of a doctor that I thought was what I wanted to be was always uh, primary care because of that background. Has the doctor shortage, the primary care doctor shortage made your work more stressful? Have you ever questioned whether or not you can continue in primary care? Um, I don't think so personally, um, mostly because the in the academic training realm, we get to live in a little bit of a bubble. And in, in, in I don't think, I talked to my residents and my trainees, I don't think I could do full-time clinic care because of the relentless grind that it is. I, I, I get to teach. I work on the inpatient side as well. I have a lot of variety in my life. Um, and I think that you know the realities of day in, day out primary care in a setting where you are trying to deal with more patients and appointments and more problems than you have time to deal with them, like it can be very daunting. And so I do see people exiting clinical medicine. You do see people exiting clinical medicine. Sunita, I assume what Nate is saying may ring true for you just both as an internist and also a researcher. But as someone who provides primary care, I'm curious what your experience has been or what your reactions are to what Nate is saying. Uh, a lot of what Nate is saying resonates. Um, I think that uh, we went into primary care for similar reasons. I will add that I think having a long-term relationships with patients and often their families over decades is incredibly um, joyful. It has become increasingly difficult. And I think that for my concern is around people who are younger at an earlier stage in their careers, it has become really difficult to meet all the needs and the demands. The time demands are real. The administrative demands are real. The reimbursement issues are difficult. So we are definitely seeing a greater difficulty recruiting and attracting younger physicians and other health professionals. Primary care is not just physicians into the field. 
keeping them there. And then there are financial pressures that are also significant for people who have a lot of educational debt. So I think that it's both the context and the settings in which we practice that make it a challenge, and also the personal issues that, um, that become the reality for whether or not this is a sustainable career and lifestyle. Hmm. Sunita, when we talk about the shortage, are we talking just about doctors, or are we seeing these shortages across all primary care providers? I'm thinking about nurse practitioners, physician assistants. Yes, that's such a good question. We are not talking just about doctors. We are increasingly in California across the country. We are talking about primary care clinicians, so medical doctors, uh, doctors of osteopathic um, medicine, nurse practitioners, NPAs. They're a really critical part of what counts for our primary care network in California. And we are seeing shortages in all of those areas in there. And we've known about that for some time, at least going back to 2017, when my colleagues did some studies projecting out into the future what the shortages would look like. Um, and, and we can talk in a moment about what makes me a little bit more hopeful, but I think it's true across um, the different groups of clinicians who provide primary care. Yeah. Um, do you want to say one quick thing about what makes you a little more hopeful as we go into the break? Yeah, I, I will. I think that we probably have a more concerted focus on primary care and investments in the state than we have had in generations. That makes me hopeful. Yeah. Um, I think we are also increasingly realized that primary care is critical first-line care for physical and behavioral health needs. And it actually is the one thing that predicts better health outcomes. Well, so that's very good to hear. And we'll dig into that more. I do want to thank Dr. Nate McLaughlin for sharing his personal experience with us. Dr. McLaughlin, thank you for being on the program. Thanks for having me. We're talking about California's primary care provider shortage. Stay with us for more. You're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about California's primary care shortage, which is particularly acute in rural areas and in the Inland Empire. And we're hearing from Sunita Muta, general internist providing primary care, also professor of medicine and director at Health Force Center at UCSF. And we're hearing from you, our listeners. Have you had difficulty accessing a primary care provider? How did you handle that situation? Where did you turn? Have you experienced long wait times to get appointments or had other problems with accessing care that you think 
may have affected your health. Or maybe you're a primary care provider, a doctor, a nurse, a physician assistant. Share your experiences with us. You can email forum at kqed.org or post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Sue writes, I finally found a primary care practitioner after many months of searching. But then I got a letter in the mail saying my PCP had basically been taken over by a direct contracting entity that allows my doctor to assign a nurse practitioner to me. Medicare rules would otherwise rule that out. I want to bring into the conversation now Dr. Arturo Bustamante, a professor of health policy and management at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Professor Bustamante, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. Just before the break, uh, Dr. Muta was talking about how important primary care physicians are as the first line of care. And I know you've looked really closely at that. Can you tell us more about the role of the primary care physician, the importance of that type of patient-provider relationship in our healthcare system? Yes, uh, the primary care provider uh, role is very important in helping the patient navigate the healthcare system. It's the entry point into the healthcare system. And it's usually the provider with whom most patients have the most uh, contact, especially those with chronic conditions. So that this role in the healthcare system helps the patient not only identify what specialists they need to go at, but also to get the prescriptions that they need in order for them to keep their chronic conditions under control. And you have data to back this up, right, that having more primary health care providers leads to better health outcomes. Uh, yes, and in many times it is usually related to the type of uh, other factors, not only primary care providers, such as social determinants of health, that helps in boosting the health outcomes, but definitely having an increased number of primary care providers helps into achieving higher and better health outcomes for these communities. Yeah, things like fewer hospitalizations and emergency department visits. I was also struck by your data on how it ultimately lowers healthcare costs. And can you just say a little bit more about that? Yes, because when like uh, patients get uh, screened early and chronic conditions such as diabetes or hypertension get to be identified on time, you can prevent uh, complications in the future. So then that could potentially reduce the visits to the ER or access to procedures that are more cost, more costly in the future. So by identifying uh, conditions early, uh, primary care providers can work with the patient to keep those conditions under control. And that in the long term could potentially save costs to the healthcare system. Well, let me go to caller Carl in San Francisco, who's on. Hi, Carl. Join us. Hello. Hello. I have two comments. Uh, number one, telemedicine uh, over a computer or a cell phone has really helped me see my primary care doctor more efficiently. And I believe it has made his time more efficient. Can some of this shortage of doctors be helped by having people be seen for certain kinds of things that way? The other comment that I would make is that I think, you know, time and again, we as Californians, have never voted for really good government-funded supply and demand worked out health care. And, you know, we're a blue state. And I wonder why we can't get there, especially since we understand that having really excellent primary care can, in the end, lower costs. Hmm. Thank you. Carl, thank you. Uh, 
You know, that's a really interesting question. Sunita, I'll start with you on that, just in terms of telemedicine as a potential solution for this doctor shortage and its effectiveness. I I, I think it definitely has a role. I, I think many of the things that uh, Carl has said are true, that I, there are conditions that, that which telehealth works quite well for. Um, I think we're still trying to figure out what it doesn't work well for, which kinds of conditions, because there are limits in what we can do. Um, and it may, I don't know if it's really increasing capacity, though. And I think that's um, that's a question to be answered, because if yeah. you have the same people who have limited uh, availability and, um, and our rates of burnout. So it, it definitely will continue to play a role going forward. Yeah, but that's an interesting point. I'm curious, Arturo Bustamante, whether or not you feel like telemedicine is something that a lot of people will be able to have access to, people who need it. Yes, I actually think that telemedicine has a lot of potential to partly address this shortage, uh, particularly for those demographics who prefer to talk to a physician who speaks in their own language, such as Spanish, uh, in California. Because right now we have a mismatch between supply and demand, uh, where the supply of providers is available is not always the place where they are demanded. So telemedicine could help as a link between this provider and this uh, patient. Uh, so I, the only situation is that I just finished a, a, a study about telemedicine and access uh, by race and ethnic um, uh, individuals with chronic conditions in California. And one of the main findings of this study is that uh, uh, individuals who were um, having uh, issues with access to broadband or who were older and wouldn't be able to use uh, the technology that was available to them to connect through telemedicine with their primary care providers. And those individuals with uh, limited English proficiency face the major di more difficulties in using telehealth to connect with their primary care providers during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think that the lessons from the pandemic and the increased use of telemedicine should be analyzed carefully in order for policymakers to design regulations and policies that would help boost the usefulness of telemedicine to connect patients with providers. Well, give us a better sense of the landscape of communities, different communities who are trying to access the healthcare system, because I know that you have looked at how the statewide shortage impacts Latino communities who are living in areas where you are seeing more often these critical physician shortages. Can you talk a little bit about what you found there? Uh, yes, uh, in some of the research that we have done uh, at the Latino Policy and Politics Institute at UCLA, we have found that Latino communities are among the most disadvantaged in terms of access to uh, primary care providers in the state, particularly in uh, shortage areas. So uh, one of the uh, main problems that we have identified is that there is not enough number of uh, underrepresented minority students being admitted into medical school in California and in the US. So we cannot create the, 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 the pipeline, the supply of these providers who could potentially work in primary care in these shortage areas. Um, also other issues that have come up in our research is that we don't have enough like number of residencies for primary care providers. And we don't admit enough international medical graduates who could potentially uh, help address this uh, uh, shortage in particularly in areas where a lot of uh, current medical students are not going, are not moving and not getting jobs in primary care in those areas. Huh. 
That's so interesting. So, Sunita, can you talk about residencies a little bit? What is the connection between number of residencies, where they are, and where the person will likely end up practicing? Yeah, in California, uh, we have very good data, as we have nationally. I think that um, there's a high probability that the area in which someone does their residency is the area that they're likely to stay and continue in practice. And that is really important in California. We can retain most of the people that we train in our graduate um, programs or in our residency programs, those three to four or more years after finishing medical school. Um, so the investments there, I completely agree with Arturo, are are really needed and critical, as are the investments in increasing um, entrance into um, medical schools, so expanding those, as well as looking at our PA and NP programs. Well, let me go to caller Olivia next. Olivia, you're on the line. Join us. Thank you so much. Um, as a graduating uh, third-year family medicine resident here in the Bay Area, thank you for bringing up um, the educational component um, and the medical training aspect of like how important that is in trying to foster and retain primary care doctors. Um, I think that every um, there needs to be structural changes at every aspect, um, including medical education, medical school education. Like I went to UCSF, which is an amazing and so privileged that I got to go there. Um, but our primary care training, you know, in most medical schools is not um, the priority for the most part. Uh, and then, you know, in residency, a lot of family medicine training programs are housed within hospitals. So a lot of the training is in hospitals. And so when people come out and then go into practice as a primary care doctor, I've had a lot of friends who feel really unprepared and have already left primary care. And that's just like a couple years in. Wow. And so I feel like, you know, no part of being a primary care doctor is it incentivized um, in terms of uh, like monetary compensation um, or even, you know, in the training aspect. Yeah. There and are so many things that are sort of being brought out by Olivia's point, Sunita. I also want to read this listener's comment. This listener writes, even as a physician with good insurance coverage in the populous Bay Area, it is a struggle to find a primary care practitioner with an open panel. This is absolutely magnified for those covered by Medicare and Medi-Cal. The reimbursement structure in healthcare is fundamentally broken. Surgical services are reimbursed at significantly higher rates compared to medical services, and this translates into lower incomes for those choosing primary care specialties. So it feels like there's a couple of things operating here. One is that it's very hard to have enough pay if you are a primary care doctor, and especially if you are seeing patients who may be on Medicare or Medi-Cal. And in lower income areas, that's where you will likely find a lot of patients with uh, public support. And then it, 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 what we're also hearing is that in very high cost of living areas, it's also very hard even if you may have a wealthier population there, to even afford to be a primary care doctor there. Am I right in hearing some of these forces at play, Sunita? You're absolutely right. I think those experiences are experiences that we have in our own practice about the uh, the number of individual calls or messages that we'll get requesting a primary care um, clinician and our ability to do that. 
And I think Olivia is right that I think that, uh, and there's increasing awareness of this, I think, in our training programs, but there hasn't been as much movement as we need, which is what the training looks like for undergraduate. How do we make this a compelling experience for students and trainees? Um, and then financially viable. And I think the thing to remember there is that when people are leaving medical school, just using that as the focus, they're often leaving with two hundred to $400,000 of debt. That's a lot to carry. Yes, that is a lot. And that, that, you know, shapes decisions on where people go, what kind of practice they can do. So I think the reality is, um, is that that's the case. We are all, we do have some things that have changed, I think, in our state. So there was a great report several years ago on the future healthcare workforce for California, looking at what the blueprint could be, what the shortages are, what the demands need to be. And one of the solutions to Olivia's point is how do you train people in the communities of need where they are likely to stay, where they perhaps have language and other cultural um, familiarities with those populations, and they can get trained um, in ways. So how do you train people in the communities where, where they can continue to practice and need and investing in those programs? And the state is doing some of that, which I think is, um, is helpful. There's, the challenge in all of these things that we haven't called out yet is this is such a long pipeline. Mm. Yes. Well, I will be looking closely at a program that is trying to address some of the very things that you talked about. But before we do, I do want to ask you, Arturo, if you could just say a little bit more about, because I think this is what we're getting at. You've said that the Latino physician pipeline has, quote, many leaks. And I'm wondering what you mean by leaks. Yeah, it's uh, in some the research that we did at LPPI, we identify that many students who want to become physicians ultimately are unable to achieve that goal because during the, the, the process from high school all the way to residency, many times they encounter many difficulties from like adapting into college, getting to get admitted into medical school. Uh, once they are in medical school, uh, getting uh, incentives to work in primary care, so at the end of the day, those who high school students who are highly motivated to become primary care physicians in their communities, very few of those individuals actually achieve that goal. And uh, many of those who were unable to do that is because they encountered personal, financial, or institutional circumstances that didn't allow them to achieve that goal. Yes, I remember that we looked closely at the experience of Black Californians in the healthcare system. And one of the things that was hard was that there weren't a lot of physicians that reflected their race or ethnicity. And then at the same time, doctors, Black doctors going through medical school were talking about how difficult it was to not have mentors and role models or people who look like them as well, um, also guiding them through this process. Arturo, could you also just underscore why it's important for doctors to reflect the communities that they treat? Sure. There's research that shows that uh, when there's like racial and ethnic concordance, uh, both language and race and ethnic, uh, patients feel more comfortable with uh, uh, patient provider communications. They are more likely to, to share with them information that is important for them to get good treatments. So there's some research that shows that there is a better, there high likelihood of uh, better outcomes when patients have access to uh, providers who are or look like them. So also from an institutional perspective, it's important for the population to be reflected in this physician and healthcare workforce so that they can find 
role models that they could uh, see as uh, as a profession that they could achieve uh, in their lifetimes or for their kids. So if they don't see enough people who look like them in the healthcare system, many of these individuals who may want to work in the healthcare system may not be attracted into going through that educational pathway. So it's important to have that as a way of, number one, uh, achieving better health outcomes, but number two, also attracting uh, physicians and other healthcare workforce to the, to, from the Latino uh, population who are not currently being reflected in the California's healthcare workforce. Again, we're talking with Arturo Bustamante, Professor of Health Policy and Management at UCLA, Fielding School of Public Health, and Sunita Mehta of Health Force Center at UCSF, a general internist providing primary care. And we're hearing from you, our listeners. Noel tweets, I heard a doctor say that Silicon Valley is very expensive and it's even hard for doctors to want to move there and practice there. Bob writes, I'm 79 and my primary care provider is a family nurse practitioner at UCSF. She's the best, very smart, very thorough. Sunita, you were touching on the different things that are making it hard, how the problem has been brewing in terms of a shortage of primary care physicians in California. For years now, you were talking about the pay and the pay issues. You were also talking about burnout and how that has been experienced by your colleagues. And then you were alluding to some of the concerns about doctors getting older. Uh, Can you just quickly talk about why that's a worry? Yeah, we're at a time where the population of physicians in California is aging. Um, That means they are likely to practice less than full time, uh, and they are more likely to retire. And that's coming at a time when we have more people who are insured and increased rates of chronic illness and an aging population. So the demand is high. The supply, if you will, is getting lower. And um, and that creates uh, a crisis that we're seeing here, which is less access, which ultimately leads to poor health and increased rates of death. We're talking about California's primary care provider shortage, how it's affecting doctors and how it's affecting you. You're calling 866-733-6786 with your experiences accessing primary care, whether or not you feel like it's affected your health and your questions about how to increase the number of providers in the state of California. Uh, you can, again, email forum at kqed.org, post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, and you can call us 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Farah. I'm Mina Kim. Almost a third of Californians live in areas where there's a shortage of primary care doctors, and the problem is especially acute in the Inland Empire. We're talking about it with Arturo Bustamante, professor of health policy and management at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. We're also talking with Sunita Muta, general internist providing primary care and professor of medicine and director of healthcare. Health Force Center at UCSF. And I'm excited to bring into the conversation now Tim Collins, incoming CEO of UC Riverside Health, which has been working to try to both increase the number of primary care physicians and also the diversity of primary care physicians as well. Tim Collins, welcome to Forum. Thank you, Mina. Thank you for having me. So give us a sense of what you're trying and how it's working to meet those needs. Well, I think the, the callers... Uh, really gave a great overview about some of the barriers or the constraints that we have. We have a demand and supply constraint. We have, I think uh, Arturo talked about the complex journey of some of these students that, that want to pursue careers in medicine. We have to make it a little bit easier for them. An expensive journey as well, uh, debt, people leaving the marketplace for that, and then the lack of infrastructure in some cases of when when physicians want to come back to the marketplace, there might not be a place for them to practice. So uh, UC Riverside Health, UC Riverside School of Medicine, UC Riverside Health are approaching it with a couple different uh, focuses. One is to increase capacity overall. So what we want to do is increase our training slots. We're currently at about 350. We have plans to expand to about 500. So that will produce more through the School of Medicine, also increase, increase our residency slots. Two, we're addressing some of the funding gaps. So we've got some scholarships. We've got the California Medical Scholars Program, which actually tra uh, tracks individuals from community colleges on their pathway to college, to medical school, and beyond. Uh, we've got some scholarship programs, the Mission Scholarship, which completely funds the, the physician's uh, education if they come back to the marketplace and practice for five years. So they have to come back to the Inland Empire. They have Empire. to come back to the Inland Empire. So as as uh, we've identified that one of the gaps is people leave the market to pay off their debt. If they come back and move to this marketplace, increase access for patients, their debt is, is essentially wiped away. Um, we're addressing some of the hurdles, like I said, about capturing some of these individuals that are passionate about caring for their communities and walking them through the, through the process. So starting in elementary schools, some of the education in K through eight about medical careers, people who might have not even thought that they could even pursue a career in medicine were attracting them. And then I think looking at some of the other areas around unique training, being culturally, culturally sensitive, and then looking at some of these pathways as well. How do we reach them? How are we missing them right now? Because we know we have a gap and we have to fill it. How many people are you currently providing some of these resources to? Like specifically, do you have a class of students? We have multiple classes of students. We've got right now in the medical school, we've got about uh, 350 in the medical school. We've got about 140 residents and fellows. We've got about 100 individuals that we're, we're taking through the Pathways courses right now. Yeah. Um, and we've also got individuals that we go to on a routine basis in the community to yeah. entice them into careers in healthcare. In terms of that scholars program you were, you were describing, how many are there? Um, right now, there are around uh, 100 in, in the overall scholars program. In the overall scholars yeah, program. Yeah, so and that grows every year. I and see. so it's been funded by different sources, and uh, everybody's really on board with identifying those future leaders. Well, let me go to caller Sam in San Bernardino. Hi, Sam, you're on. Hi. Um, I have a, a doctor who said the same thing that you guys are saying, that doctors are not getting paid enough. 
And I'm wondering, I mean, San Bernardino or the Inland Empire is not, you know, L.A. or Orange County in terms of uh, income. So I feel a little bit stuck. It's good to hear that this doctor is, you know, at UC. They have programs that are trying to keep people here. But how do we do that? I mean, in the Inland Empire. Yeah. Uh, Sam, you're raising a lot of things. I don't know quickly if you have a response to Sam, Tim. Well, I think the, the goal to keep them here is to, I think there's a couple ways. One is we have to address some of the issues that were brought up around the time demand of the physicians. We have to be better at making sure that care that care is provided and the administrative burden is taken off. I think also looking at ways in which we can look at different models to increase access. It might not always be a primary care physician. We have to look at medical assistants, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, because that's a model that needs to be evaluated. And I think the ever-growing area of telemedicine. We also probably have to accept that we're not always going to see a physician in some cases, but we need to trust that the system is there and the structure is flexible to address the needs of, of patients. We're hearing how the Inland Empire has a particularly acute issue when it comes to this shortage. How did the proportion of primary care physicians to population get so out of whack in the Inland Empire? Is it just a function of just the rapid population growth? I think there's a couple different things. One is the rapid population growth itself, and also the, the aging of the population over 65. That's significantly increasing, and studies have shown that uh, individuals over 65 utilize uh, healthcare services at a higher rate. Um, I think the reimbursement mechanism does also play a part in this, and that there is debt that these medical students incur and they need to pay it back, and the cost to develop practices themselves is prohibitive in some cases, um, and physicians aren't always trained to come out into marketplaces and develop their own their own structures. So that's also something that UC Riverside Health is doing. We're also expanding our access and inc- increasing the number of our clinics so that if physicians want to come to this marketplace, which we want them to, <laughs> we want to have a place for them to practice yeah. and to increase access. I'm really thinking about what Sam was just saying about the word stuck, sort of kind of what do we do in the meantime, this sounds like a great program and a solution that could have incredible impact, but it will take time for it to be felt here. So so what can people in the region do in the meantime? Well, I think part of it is we as healthcare providers need to be sensitive to the needs of the patients. Um, the stories about patients not being heard. Um, if patients are heard to begin with and they're a part of the equation around healthcare, we will be better as a society and in the delivery of healthcare. Um, I think telemedicine is something that will bridge us, to be honest. Um, and I think we need to be very public about the initiatives that we're putting into place to be able to deal with some of these access issues. And then I think the the state is and the federal government are fully behind this gap, as was pointed out earlier, and the funding continues to come to this marketplace. And there's great awareness of the need, and we need to continue to fund these efforts. Well, Shirley writes, I moved from San Francisco to the Coachella Valley almost five years ago. I'm 73, so I do feel safer having a doctor I know. I will soon be seeing my third GP. The other two left, and the first appointment with the new GP is five months down the road. I have found a decent urgent care service to help make up for lack of access, but of course this is not really okay. I can't blame my most recent GP for departing. She had a patient load of 1,500, but I know of some GPs here who have switched to concierge services. Again, I can't blame them, but this is disheartening to patients who can't afford extra fees. Let me go to caller Susan in Sonoma. Hi, Susan. You're on. Hi. 
Am I on? I've you never are, called yes. before. <laughs> well, thank you for calling. Okay. Yeah. So in full disclosure, I am a retired nurse practitioner and um, I'm, I'm just calling to, to uh, want to raise up that an integral part of every initiative, from my point of view, needs to be your primary, about how it's a primary care team. One of your callers talked about how they got, you know, kind of demoted down or booted out to a nurse practitioner. And the, the whole idea that we're second, you know, or less than or different for the provision of chronic condition care for primary care we that's what we do we are primary care providers and so the training is cheaper we're more likely to stay in our home communities and and we listen really well because we're nurses (laughs) i I couldn't i couldn't pass i'm sorry I, i couldn't miss that one and i loved your your previous speaker's emphasis on that but the role of nurse practitioners, of the whole primary care team, and of PAs, is often, when every time we want to expand that in Sacramento, the CMA comes up there and opposes mm. it. That is just cut nose to spite face, mm. as well as, you know, depriving our, our patients of the care that they need. Yeah. So I well, think every initiative needs to include the role of the advanced practice nurse. Well, Susan, thank Thank you for that. I'd love to get Sunita's response to what you just said, because you were alluding to, Sunita, the need for increasing the number of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and so on. And it sounds like also enabling them to do more things is what Susan is raising. Yeah, so I think there's, and and maybe I live in a bubble, but I think there's widespread recognition that that it is a team that needs to provide primary care. We don't have enough of any one particular group. I will call out that um, that the state efforts are really significant in this area. We finally have a state, California Department for Healthcare Access and Information, or HCI, and that is both collecting the data and investing resources in expanding everything from undergraduate or earlier um, nursing programs to the um, NP programs and residencies and um, and graduate medical education. So I think we have a state effort that we haven't had in the past. And as importantly, I think to what Tim was saying, we have to set targets on spending for primary care. We haven't talked about that yet, but we spend a lot of money on healthcare in our country. So it's not about increasing that pie. It's about allocating it to this preventative first line care and ensuring that there are adequate resources for a team to be able to really take care of an aging and complex population. And we well, have a state agency to do that now. Well, Sue writes, are there any government incentives to go into primary care? If not, why not? It would seem to me that the government could finance medical education for those who go into primary care and will serve in areas that need more PCPs. Clearly, that's one of the things that Riverside has identified as trying to do. But Sue is, I think, looking at a much more broader government-based way of doing that. Another listener similarly similarly is asking about the state of California. Is the state of California doing anything to offer incentives to doctors to work in areas where there are shortages, such as paying medical school debt in exchange for 10 years of working in the community? If the commitment is long enough, doctors are more likely to stay because they likely would have developed ties to the community. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering, are you hearing about any of these things, Tim? Are you hearing state support for your program (laughs) and what it's trying to accomplish? Absolutely. I think support for the program and more. 
And I think we need to continue to focus on these efforts. And once we see the success with individuals staying in the market, like you said, it's not even over 10 years. It's over five years. You're paying it. So it's an accelerated repayment. But I think it also, Alberto talked about the cultural con, uh, phenomenon Arturo, as well. yeah. Yeah. And when Arturo said, people who start from a community will come back to that community. And that's great when we can retain them, uh, make them uh, available for patient care, and make sure that they don't have this overburdening debt structure. Again, Tim Collins is the incoming CEO of UC Riverside Health. Arturo Bustamante is professor of health policy and management at UCLA. Sunita Muta is a general internist providing primary care and at Health Force Center at UCSF, a professor of medicine at UCSF as well. And let me remind listeners that you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Kim writes, I am an internal medicine physician working for 30-plus years as a general internist, most recently in the Bay Area since 2006. There is a shortage of new medical school graduates going into primary care for many reasons. One reason is financial debt. Average debt graduating from medical school is about a quarter of a million dollars. I think you had even some higher estimates there, Sunita. Primary care positions do not pay as well as other specialties. The repayment of that is more challenging and takes many more years. Another reason is quality of life. I believe some new medical school graduates view primary care practice as unsustainable. I love my job and wouldn't train it for wouldn't trade it for any other job in the world, but I am also happy that I am planning on retiring in the next 5 years. Arturo, we've talked about some different solutions. I just would love to hear from you what else you think needs to be done in addition. When I'm hearing this, I'm hopeful, but I'm also wondering, can we realistically catch up with sort of the even the broader systemic issues that we're seeing now of an aging population in the state, communities of color being neglected, more complicated potential health issues? I, I just am wondering what you're thinking, Arturo, as, as possible solutions. Yeah, I think that there are many uh, very interesting pipeline programs. And like, uh, as the CEO of uh, uh, UC Riverside Health System was mentioning, I think there's a lot of innovations that we could learn from. The problem that we have identified in uh, our research is that many of these uh, evaluations go uh, unnoticed. And many of these programs are relatively small scale. So what the promise of these programs are, is not always communicated and not necessarily evaluated rigorously. So we don't know which one of these programs is working really effectively. And those that work, uh, their size is not enough to completely address the problem. So we need to make a conscious effort at the state level to look at what has been done, what we have learned from this, and those programs that are really promising on them so that we can increase their size and increase the pipeline of physicians who are going to be working in these shortage areas. Also, a second uh, way that we can think on solutions is about the use of technology and, and a more efficient use of healthcare resources. We have already talked about that before how to incorporate different roles in the healthcare system, such as that of nurse practitioners, of uh, medical assistants, into working into teams together with the physician to uh, ease the burden that physicians have in managing the patients and make uh, them coordinate with other healthcare providers to provide those uh, roles that the patients would need to manage their chronic conditions, but that not necessarily need to be addressed by a physician. So but once we do that technology, healthcare uh, 
enforce uh, reassignment of roles, we can also look at uh, further investments into uh, using telehealth in a much more rational way. We right now have a couple of years of funding from the federal government to pretty much pay telehealth appointments very similar to in-person appointments. I think in these couple of years, we need to do a lot of learning and evaluations on mm. what works, on what doesn't work, and then based on those uh, experiences, create a policy framework that yes. is going to integrate telehealth as part of the healthcare providing system that will help us manage better what we have so far and address the needs of the patients. Well, Tim, how replicable is your program? What are your plans in terms of its growth and what you'd like to see and in, in, in the timing? I think it's highly replicable. I think when you look at what Arturo was just uh, talking about, um, Alberto, sorry, um, I think that there are, Arturo, are, yes. are, are, sorry, are, I think there were certain barriers that he discussed. I think it's, I think in the bridge, Mina, as you said, we're going to have to accept certain things that are different. I think telehealth, telemedicine will be a bridge for us. I think one of the caller's comments about team-based approach will also help us bridge. We also need to accept the fact that we might not always see a primary care physician, but it's part of the team. And when we look at team-based care and addressing some of these chronic conditions, congestive heart failure, diabetes, all these things in the marketplace that are true population health issues, it does take a team. There is no single solution. Um, but I think as we're looking at all these things coming together, historically, it may have been a little bit fragmented. It's coming together and congealing now into a strategy. Well, Tim Collins of UC Riverside Health, thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Also, Sunita Mehta, Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for being with us as well. My pleasure. Thank you. And Arturo Bustamante, really appreciate having your insights and research, too. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you for having me. And thank you always, listeners, for sharing your experiences and your questions and also your insights. This segment today was produced by Susie Britton. Forum's team also includes Caroline Smith, Grace Wan, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo, Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, Christopher Beal, Lulu Ralda, Jericho Reininger, Ethan Tovin, lindsay and Holly Kernan. And a special thank you for the warm welcome from the team at KVCR, where we're broadcasting from today. Connie Leva, Rick Dulock, Jessica Greenwell, Lillian Vasquez, David Fleming, Madison Almond, Tim Stein. Sal Castillo, Manny Salcedo, Barbara Nichols, and Adriana Trejo, thank you so much for welcoming us to your station. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend, everybody. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. 
Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.